As we come now to God's Word, you can turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read with me to Acts in chapter 16. That's the book of Acts, chapter 16. We've just sung a prayer to God asking for his help, uh, but would you join me now as we, we pray again? Lord, would you sharpen us? Do not let our hearts grow dull, but help us now to hear and to see what is true. Lord, make us eager after these things. Help us even to sit forward, almost physically, but at least uh, in our spirit, to want the things that you would give us. Guide us now by your spirit. Open our hearts to see and to believe. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read now from the book of Acts in chapter 16. I'll start in verse 11, and we'll read just a handful of verses here. Let's Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is God's word. We're starting today the beginning of a new series. We'll be reading through the book of Philippians. So why this morning are we in Acts? Well, maybe you uh, barely noticed it. It's only a, a passing note here, but you'll notice in this section of Acts and the rest of the chapter is based in the city of Philippi. Uh, he mentions that in verse 12. We went there from Philippi. And this place, the city of Philippi, and the people there becomes very near and dear to Paul as he travels as a minister of God. And so the book of Acts then will set us up to give us insight into the world we're about to enter into. We know that the author of the book of Acts is Luke, 
And the same as the writer of the Gospel of Luke, same guy. So Acts is really a continuation of the events that had happened after Jesus had died, resurrected, and then ascended back to the Father. So Acts is really a sequel. And I I know when it comes to sequels in movies, usually the sequel's not as good as the original. uh, But in this case, it's just a different feel. It's a continuation of what's happening. And some think... Uh, that the city of Philippi uh, may have been Luke's hometown even. It's, it's at least his adopted hometown. And the reason they think that uh, is because of, of what happens in verse 11 and what we call the we sections of Acts. So verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage. The we there is Paul and Silas, and Timothy, and Luke. He kind of comes along for the ride in this section. And the we switches to a they in chapter 7, or or chapter 17, sorry, uh, that um, Luke was there for part of the journey, but then describes what they did as they left on. Uh, he, He picks up with the we language again in chapter 20 when Paul returns to Philippi. So Luke is with them for at least part of their journey. He seems to be with them in the city city of Philippi. So not only had Luke heard about the work of God in the first century church, he saw it. He witnessed God's work, and in a sense, he was even a participation in the work of God this way. So the city of Philippi then is a particularly up-close and personal look at the way that God is working. Uh, We see in chapter 16 here is part of what we call Paul's second missionary journey. So after Paul had become a follower of Jesus, he became a traveling missionary, and he took several road trips around the area. The first missionary journey happens in the previous uh, couple chapters, in chapter 13 and 14, and there he takes a smaller circle around the eastern Mediterranean Sea. Uh, The reason he does that is to establish and encourage the churches in those cities there, And, and he eventually takes a full loop and ends up back in Antioch where he began, and he stays there for a while. But then when he's in Antioch at the end of Chapter 15, verse 36, it says this, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. I really like that. In other words, he says, let's go back and just check on them. See how they're doing. How's their mom and them? You know, Paul really cares about these people and these budding churches. So then that's the beginning of what's now his second missionary journey. Somewhere around 50 AD, uh, Paul packs up and he heads back to these cities that he's visited. And as he's traveling, Paul receives a vision uh, from a man from Macedonia. Uh, This occurs in the beginning of chapter 16. And the man in the vision says to Paul, come to Macedonia and help us. So he does. 
And that expands his journey, changes the route he's originally headed on. So this now is the second missionary journey. It's wider. He goes further west now, dipping into Macedonia as the gospel is spreading. Eventually, his journeys will take him all the way to Rome. Uh, But on this trip, he visits cities uh, that you'll recognize because of the letters that he writes to them. He visits the city of Thessalonica, from which we get the letters to the Thessalonians. He visits the city of Corinth, to which we get the letters of the Corinthians, and he visits the city of Philippi, from which we get the letter to the Philippians. All of these are in modern-day Greece. Now, why does Paul go there? What's Paul's goal as he visits these cities? He talks about this most clearly toward the end of Acts in chapter 26. And here uh, in chapter 26, he's talking about the very first day, the moment at which he first encountered Jesus. And this gives us some insight into Paul's purpose. This is Acts 26, beginning in verse uh, 13, we'll start. Paul says this, At midday, O king... I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So in some, Paul says this, that he was sent mainly to the Gentiles, Those are people who are non-Jews. This is not a disregard of the Jews. Uh, Peter was sent to the Jews, but Paul was sent to the Gentiles. And he says that he's sent to the Gentiles for a few reasons. Uh, One, so that they'll repent. That they'll turn from darkness to light or from Satan to God. And that in repenting, they receive forgiveness of sin and be sanctified or or shaped in holiness by faith in Jesus. And the way that all of this is going to happen, the source of it, you may have noticed in verse 18, the beginning of all of these things is that their eyes would be opened. He sends them to have their eyes opened. That's the domino that starts the domino rally. 90s reference, sorry, that's one of the toys I wanted and got once when I was a kid. 
Um, so now he, Paul's really uh, uh, hoping and, and working for this, that their eyes would be open and all these things would happen. And, and when he gets to Philippi then, he discovers that this is not a very eye-opened city. It's a very well-developed city. Uh, if, you, if you Google map this, I actually did it to see if you could. And sure enough, you can, you can still see the remains of the city there. And, and if you click in close enough, you can see uh, v- very clearly evidence of a large theater that was once in the city. Uh, Philippi is about eight miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea, so it would have been right along a coastal land route and right along uh, a sea route, so it would have been uh, common for trade and well-developed well in that sense. Uh, Philippi, a hundred years prior to this, um, had had a war at the Battle of Philippi under Mark Anthony, and so after that war was over, a lot of the war veterans, the successful ones, stayed there and started families in this city. And there's even good evidence that there was actually a medical school in the city of Philippi, which is perhaps Luke's connection, that maybe he even learned how to become a doctor uh, in Philippi. At any rate, all of this taken together is part of the reason why why Luke describes Philippi as, uh, verse 12, a leading city of the region. It's not the capital city, uh, but it was an important city, a city that's doing well, a thriving city, except when Paul arrives, he sees some things that we would not hope for. Verse 13, he says, on the Sabbath day, So the Sabbath day is the Jewish day of rest and worship. On the Sabbath day, you'd expect Paul to go to the synagogue of the city, the building or the place of worship. But verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside, outside the gate to the riverside. So instead of to the synagogue on what's there Sunday morning, uh, he goes Outside, outside the city gate to this spot along the river uh, to what's called a place of prayer. Here's what's happening here. According to Jewish law and custom, uh, they were required in order to form a congregation to have 10 or more men. That includes boys 13 years and up. Whether you think they're men or not, it doesn't matter. They considered them men. So, so they needed at least 10 uh, boys and men, at least 13 years uh, old and older, in order to form a synagogue as a public place of worship. And if that condition was not met in an area, they were to arrange for a regular place of outdoor prayer for the few that were worshipers of God. And that's what we see here. That's what Paul sees when he comes into Philippi. For all of their advancements in trade and technology, there are not even 10 men in this city that know and worship God. In other words, their eyes are largely shut to the things of God. Now, the city is not totally closed. 
And we see seeds or buds of faith in the city. There's a small gathering here uh, of, of ladies, way to go, ladies, who had come to pray and to worship God. And one of these ladies, there's only one that's uh, given a specific name, verse 14, uh, Lydia. We know very little about her, but it says that she's not native to the city. She's originally from Thyatira, which is southeast uh, quite a ways in, in what's now modern-day Turkey. And in Thyatira, that's probably the place in which she learned her craft, which is to make purple dye. Uh, they would do that by crushing up either certain vegetable roots or, or snails. Uh, they make dye differently than, than we do now, but uh, very organic, I suppose, very artisan. Uh, but she would make these purple dyes and, and sell them. And so she probably would have been a reasonably successful merchant. She learned that in Thyatira. She probably also learned in Thyatira the things of God. That's probably where she became a worshiper of God. We don't know what brought her here to Philippi, uh, but, but, but here she is. For some reason, she's moved from where she's originally from now into this region, and we don't, we don't know much about her at all after this event, uh, but here she seems to be the leader of these, this small group of women out of the entire city of Philippi. She seems to be the leader of this gathering for prayer and worship of God. Now, all of this brings us to a particular question about the church of Philippi, which is this. How did this tiny gathering of people become a thriving, faithful, generous congregation, a church of believers that Paul will eventually write the letter to the Philippians to? How did they get from a handful of less than 10 to a large and healthy church? It's not because Paul read a book, 10 Steps to Growing Your Church, or whatever else. I'm sure there's plenty of those uh, out there nowadays. That's not, that's not the answer. The answer, at least in part, we, we can never answer all of these things, but the answer in part, I think we see from the source of these things, which shows up in verse 14 at the end. We see this said about Lydia. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. You remember when Paul first left as a missionary, then he said his goal as he's sent by Jesus is, is to have people repent and to receive forgiveness and to, to be sanctified by faith in Jesus. But the beginning of all that, remember, is that their eyes would be opened. And we see this opening happen in Lydia, and that is the launch pad for the city of Philippi. Nothing can or will happen unless people are opened by God. We see a similar kind of opening 
happening earlier in Luke's account, back in the Gospel of Luke. We talked about this some even at Sunday school this morning. We happened to uh, run across it. There's the famous scene with the two disciples that are on the road to Emmaus. This is in Luke 24. And this is after Jesus had died and resurrected. And, and now um, verse, uh, Luke 24, starting in verse 15. While they, were walking, while they were talking together and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Somehow their eyes were shut. They, can't, they don't recognize Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly why their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It just says that they were kept um, something is standing in their way. It's sort of like, you know, the sliding glass door. Uh, did you have one of these as a kid? Or maybe now that you put the bar in to sort of hold the door from, from coming open. There's a bar in the way of the door that is keeping them. And so later then in this chapter, verse 30, we see this happen. When he, the he, there's Jesus, when he, Jesus, was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see here in this section that there's really two things that are opened. First, there in the first in the description that their eyes were opened to recognize Jesus, but they also say that their hearts were opened to understand the scriptures. Both of these, by the way, are an act of God. It's God taking the bar away from the sliding glass door. We see a similar sort of thing then happening uh, with Lydia. Luke says uh, in, the, in the text, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So this is not something Paul does. Paul's speaking, that's his part in this, if we can call it that, but he's not the opener. Uh, God is the opener. The Lord is the opener here. And you'll notice that it does not say that her ears were open to pay attention to their words, to his words, or it does not say that her mind was open to pay attention to his words, but it says her heart was opened. Now, we tend to think of the heart as the seat of the emotions. Uh, that's not specifically what's, what's talked about here. Heart meaning the whole self. The core of her was opened, including her emotions. In other words, her whole self was made willing to listen and draw near to what Paul is saying about God. The result of that opening is that, that she, she believes. 
she, first thing, she wants to be baptized as a, as a visible expression of that belief, and, and she wants to be called faithful by them. Yes, I, I believe I'm a person of, of faith. And for Lydia and the city of Philippi, this is just the beginning. For me and for us, I want this. I want my heart to be opened. That I would come to truly believe. But for me and for us, this is also just the beginning. Um, because once a heart is opened, now what? You don't keep opening it. Where do our hearts, once they are opened, go from here? There's a striking uh, phrase that I think is helpful to us in, in Psalms. In Psalm 86, when I was in college, this uh, short little phrase just hit me like a ton of bricks and even became one of my usernames of, of an internet website. Uh, I won't tell you. Uh, at any rate, it was very impactful to me. Uh, but I think this is helpful for us. Psalm 86, uh, verse 11. I'll read just two verses here. Uh, David, the author of the psalm, says this. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. The phrase there in my Bible is translated, unite my heart. Uh, in the NIV, the, the phrasing that had struck me, it's translated, give me an undivided heart. That hit me. What does it mean to have a heart that's undivided? Because I want a heart that's, that's, that's open, but I also want a heart undivided, a heart that's united, a heart that is moving in one direction. Because I know that so often, too often, my own heart is divided. My thoughts, my actions, my motives especially, are, are conflicted, are, are horcruxed, they're splintered. So if you ever see a good, a good tug-of-war happening, and the two sides are, are well-matched, and, and there's lots of grunting and maybe mud in the middle, but you know the little flag that's often in the center, and the tension of the rope is just shaking that whole rope, and that flag is quivering like a leaf. That happens within ourselves, that there's a tension of the conflict in our hearts then quiver in, belief, in between. We want it different than that. 
And we can make it different. We can unite our heart. In fact, the easiest way to end the tension of the tug of war that happens in our hearts is, is to just cut one end of the rope. We just cut out God and his ways, and there's no more tension. I don't have to, I, I can just ignore, ignore the call to sacrifice for my neighbor. I can just abandon any attempt at being patient with my family. I can just ignore the fact that I need repentance. And I can just carry on despising my neighbor instead of loving him. There's no tug of war there because now I'm my own master. And too often, many who call themselves Christians do this. We do not want the Lord to actually unite our heart to his ways, but instead we want our own ways. We want to, to get everything just the way that I like it and then clamp it down and build a wall and spit fire at anyone that comes even close to threatening that. But if a man cried out from Macedonia, come and help me, we'd say, quiet, you're in the way of watching my TV. This sort of attitude does end the tug-of-war. It resolves the tension, at least for a time. It certainly unites the heart uh, down an easy path, a path that leads to isolation and fear and ultimately destruction under the wrath of God because this is sin. There's got to be a better way than this to unite the heart. And there is. The good news of the gospel is that once God opens the heart through faith in Jesus, he also then begins to shape the heart in Jesus. It's not that God cuts off our end of the tug-of-war rope. It's that he changes us to pull in a different direction. And slowly we begin to, to pull in the same direction that he does. That he conforms our hearts to him. We want to ask him to strengthen that. That's what's happening here in, in the Psalms that, that David here, and we're asking God to teach us to unite our heart, to walk in his truth, to fear his name, to give him thanks, to glorify him forever with an undivided heart for his ways. In the coming weeks, coming months, we'll get to explore what this actually looks like in the way that God unfolds this, particularly in the Philippian church, as we read Paul's most encouraging letter. But we don't want to wait just for weeks to come. 
Let's ask God to shape us now. Not only to open our hearts to believe, but to give us undivided hearts to draw near to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do ask for these things. Would you open our hearts because we are closed? And would you give us undivided hearts because, Lord, we are divided on our own? Father, we need your grace and we depend upon you for all of it. Would you conform us to your heart? We ask all of this now in in Jesus' name. Amen.